John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is the, the night that Jesus was betrayed. This is um, uh, Jesus giving his disciples instructions about what's going to be in the, the new age to come, what we know of as the church age after his resurrection. He's talking about the Holy Ghost. He gave us information about the Holy Ghost that none of the writers, uh, the gospel writers really tell us. And John, as a as an eyewitness to this, and, and um, uh, certainly not everything Jesus said or did uh, was written down, it's just kind of an overview and a, and a um, summary of certain things. But John fills in the blanks for us and tells us what Jesus' last meeting with his disciples was all about. And he talks about, uh, talks about himself, he talks about where he's going, he talks about uh, what uh, things would be like after his uh, resurrection, and he talks about the Holy Spirit. Notice it says in... Um, um, well, I guess we better back up to uh, verse 8. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. In other words, we'd be satisfied if you'd show us the Father. And Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Everybody's looking for something visible. Everybody's looking for something that they can they can put their eyes on or, or natural eyes on or they can put their hands on and, and that will prove something to them. And Jesus is saying, seeing me is seeing the Father. Quit looking for something visible. If you've seen me, you've seen the character of God, you've seen the nature of God, you've seen the what God will do. And it goes further and it says, Believest not thou not, verse 10, that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Do you really have a hard time with that, Philip? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Now notice the connection between words and works. Notice Jesus makes the connection between words and works. He says, the things that I've told you, everything that you've been amazed at from the things that I've told you for the last three years hasn't come from me in and of myself. It's not, it's not, I'm not the original source for the information I've given you. What's he saying? He's saying he's been speaking by the Holy Ghost. He's saying he's been speaking the things that the Father in him by the Holy Ghost. That's the only way the Father could be in him is by the Spirit of God. He said, and remember when um, uh, it was the Holy Spirit that came and overshadowed Mary that uh, caused Jesus to be conceived and therefore born and, and raised uh, to live as a human being. So the only way the Father is in him is by the Holy Ghost. So he's saying the Father in me, the Spirit of God in me is the one giving me the words to speak. And then he says, the Father in me is the one that does the works. So he's saying the words that you've heard from me haven't come from me as the source. The works that you've seen me do, all the miracles and things that have caused your jaws to drop for three years, that came from God. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because you've heard his words through my lips, you've seen his works through my hands. Then he goes further in verse 11. Thank God he didn't just leave him there. I'm sure Philip was feeling about that big at that point in time, real small. But he goes further and he says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, he's saying, if you don't believe it because I'm telling you, just remember what you've seen. Now, to me, that says, quit looking for something else. And there's always a tendency to look for something else. How many of you have prayed for God to do something and he does it and you think, was that really God? You know? There's so many times that God is doing things in our lives and we have a tendency to think, well, if you just do something else, then I'd know. And folks, it's, it's a never-ending thing. There's always going to be something else that you can think of that if you had that, then you'd know. But if you had that, you wouldn't know. Then you'd be looking for one more thing. It's a natural tendency to look for one more thing. So if he says, Philip, either believe me because of what I'm telling you or else believe me because of what you've seen. Verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, 
The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now, I'm glad he didn't leave Philip where he was, because like I said, if I was Philip, I'd be feeling about an inch tall. Because Jesus shot him down pretty good there. He said, Philip, you've been looking at the wrong thing, and you haven't paid attention to what you've had. But then he says, now, if you believe on me, the same believing on me, the believe the Father is in me because of the words, believe the Father is in me because of the works. If for no other reason, just go with the things that you have seen and believe on me because of the miracles. And then he goes further and he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. That's what he just encouraged Philip to do. So he's not talking about somebody that's got this overwhelming belief of the impossible kind of faith. He's just talking about somebody that's willing to believe that God was in him for the words, to speak the words and to do the works. Now, folks, you believe that. This is not some unreachable position. See, so many times when people talk about faith, they get to thinking about faith in great measure. Oh, you got to have mountain-moving faith. What is mountain-moving faith? In a natural mind, we think mountain-moving faith is somebody that believes no matter what and never has the doubts that I have. But mountain-moving faith is just somebody that simply says, here's the circumstance, here's the word, I choose the word. That's all mountain movement faith is. Everybody has the same doubts and fears come to them. I I get amused sometimes because people say, Pastor Mike, how long did it take you before you were sure the word was true? And I can can see instantly what they're doing. They're thinking that I never have the thoughts they have. Well, I have the same thoughts you have every day. Everybody does. Nobody, no matter how many great works that they've done. The Bible says Jesus was tempted on all points like as we were. Have you ever been tempted with wrong thoughts? You ever been tempted with doubt? Well, that means Jesus was too. Jesus was? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. And there's never been somebody, anybody that's done great works that you and I may marvel at that haven't had the same thoughts, the same doubts, the same fears come against them as you and I have. Well, what makes the difference? They just simply push through them and act on the word. It's kind of like the old saying, courage is not the absence of fear. It's the willingness to overcome it by going ahead anyway. So he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, we talked about this, this is not only talking about Jesus believing on him as a savior or him as having hung on the cross for our sins, but believing in him as to who he is and what his purpose is and also his name, the power in his name. He that believeth on me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my father. Now, folks, I said this last week, but I'll repeat it. I don't know what the greater works are. I hear some people saying, well, the greater works are getting people saved because Jesus couldn't get people saved. Well, in fact, Jesus did get people saved. He got his disciples saved after he was raised from the dead. He breathed on them in John chapter 20 and said, receive the Holy Ghost. And their lives were changed. They got saved. Now, that same group, he said, now, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Ghost. I've already commissioned you, given you the great commission, but don't even think about starting that without the power of the Holy Ghost. But he got people saved. But even if we accept that to be true, okay, I don't care. If somebody wants to say getting people saved uh, today is a greater work than what Jesus did, that's fine. But we're still left with what Jesus said. He said we'd do the same works and greater works. The people I see in here talking about the greater works being salvation are the ones that are trying to discount the works that he did. Well, he did those because he was the son of God. Well, wait a minute. He just said you'd do them too. So if you believe on him to do the greater works like get people saved, that's the same faith that it takes to do the works that he did also. So, folks, I'm working on the works that he did. When I get those handled, then I'll talk to him about the greater works and figure out what those are. 
I just want to stick with the works that he did. So he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. How are we going to do those works? Now, folks, that is the million-dollar question in the church. If there was an easy answer for that, if there was just a simple, here's how you do it, and anybody can do this, then the church would be doing miracles and people would get saved in much greater measure than they do today. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. If the church was doing the works that Jesus did in the same quality and with greater quantity because there's more of us, getting people saved really wouldn't be a problem. Are you out there? Am I telling you the truth or not? Well, then what's the point? Or what's the issue? What's the hindrance? What's the hang-up? He said, verse 13, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, the word ask does not mean entreat. It does not mean ask God to do something like you would ask him to answer your prayer. As a matter of fact, John, a lot of people confuse this verse of Scripture with John chapter 16, verse 23. I'll read this to you. Jesus is talking about under the new covenant, verse 23 of John chapter 16. He said, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. That literally says, ask me no more questions. Jesus has been their question answerer for three years. He says, it's not going to be like that when I go to the Father. Well, who's going to answer our questions? Wikipedia is not around yet. How are we going to get answers? And in that day, our day, you shall ask me no more questions. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is a different word, ask. This word literally is request or to entreat. Verse 24, hitherto, up till now, have you asked nothing in my name? Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. That is not what he's saying or talking about in John chapter 14. John chapter 16 is talking about getting answers to prayer. John chapter 14 is not talking about praying at all. John chapter 14 is talking about doing the works of Jesus. How many times do you see Jesus pray before he healed the sick? We kind of generally say or casually say Jesus prayed for the sick. But show me any prayer in the Gospels that he ever prayed. Show me in the book of Acts where the early church prayed for the sick. Didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Well, how did they get the sick healed? How did Jesus heal the sick? He did the healing works that he was sent to do. He didn't stop and pray, oh, Father, if it be your will. He didn't have to do that because he knew it was always the will of God to heal. He He knew sickness was always of the devil, and therefore it's the will of God to always heal because Jesus was sent to destroy the works of the devil. If sickness is a work of the devil, Jesus was sent to destroy that work of the devil, and the only way you can destroy sickness is through healing. Folks, this is not rocket science. So Jesus didn't pray for the sick. He did not request of God healing for any on anyone's part. Well, what did he do? He put a demand on the work that he was given to do. He put a demand on the power of the Holy Ghost that was upon him. That's what this word ask means. It means to call for, to require, or to place a demand on. I used the example last week of a bank. Used to. You don't say it too, many, too much anymore on checks. At least I don't. But uh, used to. Where the, the, um, uh, the line, I don't know what you call it, but the line where you make the check out to, the person that you're making the check out to, it used to have a little phrase or saying right next to the left side where it said pay to the order of or pay to the demand of. And what that means is you write a check to me. We'll use me for an example. 
You write a check to me for $100. When I give that check or deposit that check to my bank, they then give that check to your bank. And when that check comes to your bank, the presence of that check, the presentation of that check places a demand on your account for the amount that you wrote the check for. Now, see, some people hear us say to call for and require or demand, and some people will hear that and they'll think, well, those people are arrogant. You can't demand anything of God. Well, sure you can. Jesus said you could. But see, when they talk about demand, they're talking about arrogance. They're talking about a wrong attitude. Well, folks, your bank doesn't have to have a wrong attitude when it presents your check. The fact that it presents the check, and that's the terms of your checking account contract, then your bank is obligated to pay the funds that you wrote the check for, assuming you got them to to back up the check, right? That's what this means. To call for, to require, or to demand. When you put your ATM card in the little ATM slot, your debit card through the ATM slot, you're making a requirement on your own funds for the bank to deliver those funds to you. And they're good enough to just charge you a little small amount to do so. You make a demand. You're requiring something according to the terms of the contract. Folks, Jesus is a legal contract between us and God. You may not be comfortable saying that or or hearing it in those terms. But the fact is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant, which was a contract that God made with Abraham. So when we use what Jesus said were the terms of the contract or the agreement, which was his name, God is obligated to fulfill the terms of the contract. Not because you're trying to weasel something out of him that he doesn't want to do, but because this was the contract that he made. This is the way he wanted it to work. So Jesus said, what things soever you call for or require in my name, that will I do. Notice God's not the one that does it. Jesus is the one that does it. That will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus said, when you use my name, it's the same thing as asking me or, 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 or well, ask is, is okay to use in this term. It's the same thing as asking me to perform something that I said that I would do. When you use his name, you're calling for him to do something that he said that he would do. Well, the fact that he said that he would do it shows that it's his will. And he said, that's the key to doing the works of Jesus. Now, Mark chapter 16. Jesus tells his disciples. Verse 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Another translation says every living being. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. This is not talking about water baptism. It's talking about being baptized into Christ. How are we baptized into Christ? By believing in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confessing him as Lord. That causes you to be baptized into Christ or baptized into the family of God. has nothing to do with water baptism. How do we know that? Because he said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If that's water baptism, then that means water baptism is a requirement for salvation. Well, if that's the case, then why didn't Paul baptize people in water? Paul makes a big deal talking to the the, uh, Corinthians about how I didn't baptize very many of you, and I'm glad I didn't, talking about water baptism. Why? Because water baptism has become one of the divisive points, even in Paul's day, as it is today. Well, my, I was baptized by Paul, so that means it really took. Well, I was baptized by Peter. Well, I was just baptized by John. Folks, that's what they were doing. And they were using 
their baptism, their water baptism experience has sometime become some kind of point of credibility with God. And it has nothing to do with salvation. Water baptism is just an outward sign of something that's happened on the inside. And if somebody says that Jesus is the Lord, but they're not confessing him as Lord from, uh, because of a belief in their heart, they're just saying it out of their head, then you can dunk them in water and keep them under as long as you want to, and they're not going to come up saved. So he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into the family of God. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs, everybody say signs. And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Now you'll notice I read through some of the punctuation because in the original text there is no punctuation. The translators put the punctuation in there according to their understanding and for reference sake, so that they could help us. But that doesn't mean they got it all right. Folks, the punctuation and even the translation of the King James is not sacred, but the text is because it was inspired of God. So they put the punctuation at these signs shall follow them to believe. In my Bible, it's got a semicolon. These signs shall follow them that believe. And then it goes further and says, in my name, they shall cast out devils. But I believe it's these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Now, it doesn't change the meaning either way. I mean, you can reject what I'm, t- what I'm suggesting here if you want to. It doesn't change the meaning because he still says the work is done in his name. But I believe the emphasis is believing in his name. I believe the emphasis is believing in his name. These signs shall follow those that believe in my name. Well, what signs? Number one, they shall cast out devils. That shows authority over the devil. Number two, it says they shall speak with new tongues. That's talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Number three, it says they shall take up serpents. Again, that's a, the word take up there uh, literally means to lift as an anchor so you can sail away. It's talking about breaking the bondage of the devil over somebody's life. The fourth thing it says, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That's talking about divine protection. The fifth thing is, here's the fifth sign, they shall lay hands on the sick and they, the sick, shall recover. Now, how are those signs going to take place? In the name of Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not. How many of you are filled with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues? Every time you speak with other tongues, you're speaking in the name of Jesus. Every time you speak in other tongues, every time you open your mouth trusting the Holy Spirit to give you utterance to speak, every time that utterance is there, you are showing two things. Number one, you're showing belief in the name of Jesus and you are speaking in his name. But we don't think in those terms, do we? We just think, well, we're speaking in tongues. Or we're praying in other tongues. And we discount, and this is going to be a real important thing as we see further, assuming we finish, as we see further tonight in how the disciples or the apostles, the early church, used the name of Jesus. They didn't use it like some good luck charm in the name of Jesus. Like the modern day church does. We say a prayer and we think it doesn't count unless you finish it by saying in the name of Jesus. Well, folks, that's not the way the name of Jesus is supposed to be used. It's not some good luck charm. It's not some talisman. It's not some magic wand type thing that makes everything work. The name of Jesus is something that you and I are supposed to have an understanding that we live by. Hold your finger here and turn. Uh, well, no, we won't. We'll go to the book of Acts after this. Turn with me over to, to Colossians chapter 3. Let me show you something Paul said that's going to be real important in this. I don't want you to start using the name of Jesus. I don't want this teaching to cause you to use the name of Jesus like it's some magical charm. 
I want this teaching to cause you to realize the work of the name of Jesus in your life. Notice what Paul said, Colossians chapter 3. Um, better back up to what? Verse 15. Notice it says, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Notice you have to choose to let that happen. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. You don't have to. You can be under the same anxiety as the rest of the world, or you can choose to let the peace of God rule. Rule means to be in charge, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body. In other words, God has called you to peace. Now, you don't have to walk in it. And a lot of Christians don't. But you can be ruled by the peace of God. Now, if you're ruled by the peace of God, that means you're not anxious about anything. That means Philippians 4 becomes a reality. Be careful for nothing. Well, why aren't you careful or anxious or worrying about anything? Because the peace of God is ruling in my heart. What does that mean? The situations and the circumstances in your life are any better than some other guys? No. I've got the same things to deal with that they do. But how we handle them is really the issue. I'm going to choose to let the peace of God rule in my life so that even when I face difficult circumstances, I can stay at peace because I've found I hear from God a lot better when I'm in peace than when I'm in turmoil. That's what he's saying. God called us to live that way. You don't have to, but you can. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, which also, to the which also you are called in one body. That means everybody is called to live in peace. And be ye thankful. I'm thankful for the peace of God. How about you? Kind of like the little boy said, you know, I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is better. I've been in peace and I've been outside of peace and being in peace is better. There's something to be thankful for there. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ, your choice, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. You can choose to let the word of God dwell in you in a rich or full manner. How do we know that it's dwelling in us in a full manner? Because your life is is identified by singing praises, even spiritual songs. You've always got a song in your heart no matter what's going on. Now, does it mean you're not going to have any trouble? No, it means you take the trouble that you encounter in life and you overcome it with the Word of God by singing songs and being thankful. Acts chapter 16, it says in verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises. It's pretty good if you can pray and sing praises in jail. Now, no problem with praying. Well, there's a lot of people that would be praying in the middle of jail. But they didn't stop with just praying. They prayed and sang praises. Why? Because the Word of God was dwelling in them richly. Because they recognized that the Word of God and the mission that God had sent them on was bigger and stronger and greater and more powerful than anything that they encountered. So what's a little jail time when God sent us here? He didn't send us to this city to get put in jail. Therefore, he'll get us out of here. Folks, God did not send you to the earth to be sick. God did not send you to the earth to be financially impoverished. He did not send you to the earth to be bound by the devil in any way whatsoever. And if you let the word of God dwell in you richly, knowing his will is for you to be free, then why not sing a song about it? 
Why not be thankful now? Well, I'll be thankful when it changes. Well, this is how you change it. Praise is the highest type of faith. Praise shows, identifies in your life that you really do believe the word's true. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Before he had the son, his strength of faith was shown by his willingness to praise God for the answer before he saw the answer. That brings us to verse 17. He just said, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, verse 17, and whatsoever you do, say whatsoever. That means everything, doesn't it? And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Then he starts talking about wives and husbands. You know what he's saying? He's saying, be married in the name of Jesus. Live your married life in the name of Jesus. Wives, wife in the name of Jesus. Husbands, husband in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? That means everything you do. He's not talking about the spiritual stuff. Do that in the name of Jesus. He's saying everything should be in the name of Jesus. How do you do that? Folks, when I get in my car and drive home tonight, I'm going to drive in the name of Jesus. And that does not mean I'm going to get in my car and say, I'm driving in the name of Jesus. And see, that's the only way that most of the church world uses the name of Jesus. They declare something trying to get something to happen. And that's not what the Bible says about the use of the name of Jesus at all. Are you with me? He's saying, live in the name of Jesus. How do you do that? Be conscious that because you are in Christ, everything you do, he is with you. He's there at an instant's notice for whatever access to his power or his sufficiency that you might need at the drop of a hat. Live in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? That means you're going to be conscious of him, Jesus, as the person and the power in his name always. That means it becomes the overriding focus of your life. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. How big can your problems be if you focus on the name of Jesus being bigger than everything else? Oh, but you don't understand, Pastor Mike. I've got some real problems. Are they bigger than the name of Jesus? Yeah, but but uh, we're talking impossible stuff. Yeah, and? Isn't that what the name of Jesus performed? His miracles and impossible stuff? And that's the reason why our problems seem so big to us. Because we just think, well, we're Christians and someday we're going to heaven. And yeah, the greater one lives in us. But boy, we've really got some problems. I mean, what are we going to do? we got real life going on now. Do you see my point? If we recognize we are in Christ and greater is he that's in us because we're in Christ and we're in Christ 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. We never get outside of Christ, meaning we never lose access to his power or to the impossible things that faith will produce. Never. Some of the things Jesus said about faith and about his name are absolutely astounding because he puts no qualifications on them whatsoever other than believe. Jesus said, whatsoever you ask believing shall be done and nothing shall be impossible to you. He said, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Are you kidding? Jesus said in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done. 
Yeah, but what about if we ask something that's the wrong thing? If his word is abiding in you, you're not going to ask for the wrong thing. If, your word, if his word is abiding in you, you're going to ask according to his will. Well, what is his will? For you to be in victory in every area. God wants you to have more healing than you've got. God wants you to have more finances than you've got. God wants you to have more peace than you've got. Whatever it is you've got that you think, I'm glad I've got that, God wants you to have more of it. You're going to have to live in the name of Jesus to access that. Now, folks, I'm finding some of this out myself. So whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father and the Father by Him. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Let's look at the, the use of the name of Jesus in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 1. Uh, let's start t- reading in... Well, just start reading in verse 1. Acts 1, one. The former treatise means letter, gospel of Luke. Have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach? I love that he says that Jesus began it. He didn't say Jesus ended it. See, the gospel is just the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. You're still living what he's doing now. He didn't say, the former treatise, O Theophilus, I have written to remember the good old days which a lot of the church operates on. Boy, wouldn't it have been great to live when Jesus walked on the earth. Actually, you're living at a better time now. You might have been able to witness certain things back then, but now you can live those things. So it's better now. Until the day he began to both to do and to teach these things, until the day in which he was taken up, after that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. To whom, to the apostles also, he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I think I said this last time. Wouldn't you like to have tapes of that seminar? Man. Well, we've got the notes. Those are Paul's letters. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, folks, I want to remind you where we started in John chapter 14. Jesus said, verse 12, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, that means him and his name. The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. So when Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Father, because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost in just a few days, for them to act on that would be believing in him, wouldn't it? So even receiving the Holy Ghost, these guys are already saved. Even being, re- even receiving the Holy Ghost is in the name of Jesus or as a result of believing in him. Verse 6, when they therefore had come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're still worried about politics. They're saved, but they're still worried about politics. It's easy to get sidetracked, isn't it? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put under his own power. But, here's the important part, don't worry about when Jesus is going to restore the kingdom. Here's the important thing for you, but you shall receive power. After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Now, hadn't they already told him to go into all the world? Hadn't he already commissioned him that? 
So notice he says, go into all the world, but don't think about starting your journey into the world without the power of the Holy Ghost. Don't even think about having church without the Holy Ghost. I love that. That's an old John Osteen phrase. Don't even think about having church without the Holy Ghost. So what happens? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Ghost is poured out. Everybody hears what's going on. Everybody sees the disciples, the 120 come out of the upper room, uh, which was probably somewhere in the temple. They come out of the upper room, and everybody hears them speaking in different languages, and Peter stands up and preaches. And what does he preach? He preaches Joel's prophecy. This is that which was foretold by the prophet Joel, verse 16. And he tells what the prophecy is. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. In other words, it's not a select few. It belongs to everybody. And I will show, shine, show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord has come. Now he's talking about that which happens at the end of the tribulation period. But then notice verse 21. And it shall come to pass. Here's the, the, the change under the new covenant. The change that occurs when the Holy Ghost is poured out. It says, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter starts preaching about the name of Jesus. They start asking, what are we going to do? They hear Peter preach. What are we going to do? How are we going to fix ourselves? Because we're without hope. Verse 38, Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. Again, he's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into the family of God, being baptized into Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, it tells us that 3,000 people got saved that day. It doesn't tell us 3,000 people got baptized. It tells us 3,000 people got saved. So, again, he's not talking about water baptism. The Bible really puts very little importance on water baptism. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be important to us. I think it holds a place in our Christian life, but certainly not the, 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 the place where wars have been fought over it and among church circles. Now, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily. Everybody say daily. That means every day, doesn't it? He's been there every day. This is not their first day to go in this gate. This is not the first day to pass him. Jesus may have passed him when he entered the temple too. He's been there day after day after day after day after day. This is not a new thing. This is his spot. Everybody knows this guy. Whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, crippled man, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. Can you spare some change? And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none. Doesn't mean they didn't have any money. It means they didn't bring any money to the temple to pray. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. Well, what have you got, Peter? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He knew he had something, and what he knew he had was power in the name of Jesus. Now, folks, I want to emphasize, Peter didn't just look at this guy and decide, you know, I'm tired of seeing him sick, I'm going to get him healed. Because he may have passed by this guy day after day after day. It was the normal thing that they did. Assuming this was their normal path into the into the temple, he's passed him every day, however long he's been going there. 
So the name of Jesus is not something that's indiscriminately used at your will. But when it comes to doing the works of Jesus, we have to use Jesus as our example. And there are times where Jesus went, like, for example, in John chapter 5, where he went to the pool of Bethesda. There were five porches full of sick people, and he got one guy healed. The Holy Ghost prompted him to use the unlimited power of God that was upon him as the, as the Christ, as the Messiah, to get one guy healed. Now, could anybody else in that group been healed? Certainly, by exercising their own faith. But if it's something that you're going to initiate yourself, you're going to have to have something from, uh, from God by the Holy Ghost that's going to take the part of the other person's faith. We call that special faith. What that means is this. If you have faith to be healed and I have faith to lay hands on you for healing, we can get anything accomplished. But if you don't have faith to be healed, then that means I'm going to have to double up on my end and that comes by a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. Because faith is still necessary to receive from God. Do you understand how that works? Some people are going to healing meetings and they're saying, well, I'll just trust that the minister's got enough faith for me. Well, without a special manifestation of the Holy Ghost, he doesn't. He's got faith to do his part. But if somebody's going to have to do your part, then that means it's going to take a move of the Holy Ghost. And you don't move the Holy Ghost just because you want him to move. The Bible says these things, these manifestations of the Spirit work as the Spirit wills, not as you will. So I can only conclude from this story that the Holy Ghost prompted Peter to do something about it on that particular occasion. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the, uh, the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered in with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate. Everybody knows this guy. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. He is not going to let these guys go. Well, you could well understand that. This is a big day for him. As he held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when people saw it, Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? I love the fact that the Holy Ghost knows what everybody's objection is going to be. Because the modern-day church says Peter and John and the other 12, or well, 11 disciples, and the one that they replaced Judas with, never really heard about him. But they'll say the apostles had special power. To prove that Jesus was risen from the dead. But when the last apostle died, all that power was done away with. Well, if that was the case, who would know better than Peter and John and the other apostles? Right? What did they say? They said, what are you looking at us for like we've got some special power? Or that we've got some special place of holiness. In other words, they're saying we've got the same righteousness or holiness that every Christian has in Jesus. And we've got the same power that's available to every other believer. Now, I know that doesn't satisfy a lot of the modern day church. But like I said, who's going to know better than the guys that are accused of having special power? They said we don't have any special power. Why look you so earnestly on us as if by our own power, our own holiness, we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son, Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen in John 15, John 14, verse uh, 13? 
Whatsoever you shall call for, require in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It's exactly what they said. It's almost like they remember Jesus said it. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and has killed the Prince of Life whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. That's a pretty harsh way of, of, of saying Jesus did this. He says, Jesus, you remember the one you killed just a couple of months ago? The one you were crying for to be crucified? He's the one that did this. Now notice what he says in verse 16. Now he's going to tell where the power came from. And he said, and his name through faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him, another translation says of him. That may be a reference to special faith in operation. The faith which is by or of him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. I like William's translation on this. The first part of the verse, it says, On the grounds of faith in his name, has his name made this man strong? And I want you to understand what Peter is saying. Peter is saying the name did the job because the name equals Jesus himself. Can I say that again? Peter is saying that faith in the name of Jesus did the job because the power is in the name because the name equals Jesus. And isn't that exactly what John 14, 13 says? And whatsoever, in order to do the works that Jesus did here on the earth, whatsoever you shall call for or require in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do you realize every time we use the name with faith in his name, Jesus stands up at the right hand of God to accomplish whatever it is we've called for? Because you know as well as I do, the devil does not want the name of Jesus to produce results. So whatever hindrance there is, whatever resistance there is, when we use the name of Jesus, the devil tries to show resistance and Jesus stands up, looks down. Now, the devil's already tangled with Jesus a couple of times before. He knows how that ends up. That does not turn out well for him. So Jesus literally is the enforcer of his name producing results. And that's exactly what this means. Even by him does this man stand before you whole. We use the name. Jesus did the work. says 5,000 people get saved as a result of this. Acts chapter 4 tells us that as the, the crowd is being spoken to by Peter and he's getting all these people saved, verse 1, it says, As they spoke unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees did, and so that was the, the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. Pharisees did. Sadducees are upset not because of everything else that's happened, just because they're preaching resurrection. Well, we'll explain the miracle away later, but man, you're kicking over our doctrine. Verse 3, And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, that means prison, for it was now evening. 
Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men were about 5,000. So they got 3,000 saved on, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Now they got 5,000 saved by using the name of Jesus. Folks, I'm telling you, if the church would do the works of the, the works that Jesus did by recognizing the power in his name, by recognizing faith in his name produces the same works, getting people saved is not a problem. The problem is when we have to try to convince them of something without the show of power. Without any evidence. So it says, and it came to pass, verse 5, on the morrow, that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all the big dogs and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Man, we got an important meeting going on here. And when they had set them in the midst, put Peter and John in the middle of the group, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, folks, they're smart enough to know what everybody should be smart enough to know, and that is man does not have power in and of himself to heal the sick. So they recognize that there's some power that's come from somewhere or there's some name that carries power that's produced this result, and that's their question. By what power or by what name have you done this work? When signs and wonders and miracles take place, everybody's going to know that it wasn't really you that did it. That's readily evident. And so they're going to want to know what's the source of the power that caused this or brought this about. That's their question. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, wait a minute. I thought he was filled with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. Isn't that where he began speaking with other tongues? Being filled with the Holy Ghost here in Acts chapter 4 And verse 8 does not mean speaking with other tongues. It means he was prompted by the Holy Ghost. He was given utterance from the Holy Ghost or by the Holy Ghost in how to answer the the scribes, the high priests, and all the group. That means he's given utterance to speak. Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, crippled man, and by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people in Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. What's Peter saying? Same thing he said to the crowd. He said the name equals the man. How many of you are in Christ? You know what that means? That means you're in his name. That's why Paul said, whatever you do in word or deed, do in his name. Because you're already in him. And he equals his name. You cannot separate Jesus from his name. Now, the church tries to. The church tries to say Jesus is the Savior. And then discount the name of Jesus. But there is no separation between Jesus and his name. Because you can't even get saved without the power of the name of Jesus. Now, that may be as far as somebody uses the name, but the name equals Jesus himself. So if Jesus lives in your heart, then the name of Jesus lives in you as well. There is no separation. They're one in the same. So he says, by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him. Does this man stand here before you whole? This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. 
folks, do you remember that not but a month or two ago, Peter and the rest of the apostles are hiding behind closed doors because they're afraid of these very people? Tell me something hadn't changed. Tell me something didn't occur when Jesus appeared in the middle of them and breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Ghost. Man, these guys were assembled together in John chapter 20. They were assembled behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. Well, what Jews? These very people. These are the ones that have the power, the authority to put them to death, just like to put Jesus to death. And what does Peter do? Does he shrink back? No, he says, you guys were the ones who crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. And now we're doing works in his name. I love the boldness of these guys. Verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, meaning any other name or any other person, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. You know what this means? This means they saw these guys don't have our education. They're not part of the in crowd like us. But we see two things. We see not only are they ignorant and unlearned men, but they've got boldness. They've got something we don't have. And these two guys had a lot of something they didn't have. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were ignorant and unlearned men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. I love that. What are they going to say? No, he's not really healed. You go back and sit at the beautiful gate. But when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. I see in that they would like to. But they can't. So let's see. What are we going to do with these guys? They've done a miracle. Going to have a hard time persuading people that didn't happen. Maybe we could get this crippled guy to move to another town. Maybe that would help. Well, at any rate, verse 17, but that it spread no further among the people. Let's contain it. That's the answer. Contain it. We can't discount it because the crippled guy is healed now. But let's contain it. That it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name or in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Folks, what did the, the, the Jews, the religious leaders recognize as their biggest problem with this thing called Christianity? The name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Now, I, I see a couple of things, and I'm out of time here, so I guess we'll have to go to part three next week. But I see a couple of things here that I think are worth mentioning. First of all, the fact that they perceive that Peter and John are ignorant and unlearned men. If these guys don't have any power, they're not going to go anywhere as far as their message is concerned. They're not going to persuade people through their eloquence because they weren't eloquent. They're not going to persuade people with their education because they're not educated. They're not going to persuade people through their intellect because they're fishermen. There's nothing about these guys in and of themselves that's going to draw a crowd. And except for the power that they're showing, there would be nothing to be concerned about these people whatsoever. 
Christianity would have died out like that. If it was left to Peter and John to lead the church, not going to be anything to lead in a very short period of time. But it was the power that they had a problem with. Now, they know what the source of the power is. Peter and John are real upfront about that. If Peter and John said, well, Jesus appeared to us and he gave us something special. Well, that's easy. Kill them and now you're done with it. But if it's the name of Jesus that's got the power, then if we'll kill these guys, the name will just be used by somebody else and we've got to have a bigger problem. You can't kill the name of Jesus. You know the only people that can kill the name of Jesus? The people that are supposed to be using the power. And the church has done a pretty good job of that, in my opinion. So what do they do? They threaten them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. If we can just stop the name. Folks, can I ask you a question? Maybe this would be a good place to just quit this evening with a, with a question and a challenge. Has the devil kept you from using the name of Jesus? If he has, he can cause it, cause the whole message of Christianity not to spread any further. Because that's the way you contain it. You contain it by doing away with the power in his name. Now, there is power in his name. Jesus said so. Jesus said, whoever believes in him, believes in the use of his name, whatever they call for or require or place a demand on in the name of Jesus, Jesus himself will do it. So there's power there. We can't do away with the fact that there is power in the name of Jesus. But we can do away with the use of that power by letting the devil talk us out of using it. You're the one that decides. You can either do the works of Jesus or you can just say, well, we're saved. And when we get out of this place, we'll go to heaven. Which way do you think the devil wants it to be? If the devil can just get to church, Christians, to hunker down. Well, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. I like the fact that Peter was pretty offensive. Peter said to the crowd, you're the ones that called for Jesus to be crucified. Then he said to the Pharisees and the high priests, the very ones that were calling for Jesus to be crucified. He said, Jesus, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, has done this work. Peter is not backing up from anybody. When you know who you are in Christ, when you know the power in the name of Jesus, it's easy not to back up. And in my opinion, you judge this for yourself, but in my opinion, the reason the church doesn't do the works of Jesus and doesn't step out in faith on the name of Jesus to use the name of Jesus is because we're not really sure what's going to happen if we do. Yet Jesus said, if you put a call, whatever you called for, whatever you required, whatever you put a demand on in his name, he said he would do it. I guess it just comes down to did Jesus mean what he said? Now, there's no question that we, we may all have a story. Well, I used the name of Jesus and it didn't work. Well, let's think about what we're saying. Did Jesus lie? If Jesus lied in John 14, 13, then how do we know he didn't lie in John 3, 16? It's either all true or it's all a lie, folks. There is no middle ground. Jesus either told the truth in everything that he said or some of it's wrong and we won't know which part to believe and which part not to. He said whatever you use the name to accomplish, he would back up. He would back it up. But that it spread no further. I love the fact that the Bible tells us how the devil operates. But that it spread no further, let's command them, threaten them, 
and command them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. If the devil just can keep you from using the name. You know how to develop faith in the name? Two ways. Meditating in what Jesus said and using it. Two ways you develop faith in the name. Meditating in what Jesus said that he would do when you used it. And secondly, put it to use. It's the only way it comes. Only way it comes. We'll talk a little bit further next time. There's a lot more in the book of Acts about the use of the name of Jesus and how it operated in their lives and not just in special occasions. Why don't we all stand together? Sorry, I went a little long. Didn't get halfway where I wanted to go, but we'll just keep going. Praise the Lord. Let's lift our hands and thank God for the name of Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you by faith in the name of Jesus. Father, you know the thoughts and the doubts and the fears that we all deal with. There are things and situations that we all face that we think we would love to be able to use the name of Jesus and see supernatural results. Yet so many are afraid to step out on that name. Father, teach us. You know our frailties. You know our weaknesses. Teach us that we may develop faith in the name of Jesus to do the same works that Jesus did and whatever the greater works are, we do those as well. Father, our prayer is that you would use us. So we pray the prayer that Paul prayed for the church, that you would strengthen us with might by your spirit in our inner man, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and depth and breadth and height, and that we would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, fill us with your fullness. Make us aware of that which you've given to us so that we can set others free, so that we can do the works of Jesus. We'll give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for everything that's done. In Jesus' precious name, If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great week.